Welcome to Snakes and Funerals. I'm your host, Evan Morgan, and I have, uh, as always, with me, my co-host, Eli Berger. Eli. Hello. Hello. We, are, we have a spy within our midst. <laughs> yes, uh, we do. I'm very happy to say that we have a, a special guest joining us today, a friend of the show, prince of movie <laughs> lists, uh, and co-host of the excellent uh, podcast Catalyst and Witness, Ryan Swen. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's, um, it's kind of an honor to be here. Well, we're honored to have you. Oh, and, you. Uh, you know, you've been probably the number one promoter of our uh, show here. Uh, so I thought I'd give you the chance to plug uh, your show uh, for the three people who listen to this show and don't already uh, follow you and or listen <laughs> to your show. Uh, so give us the, the elevator pitch here. All right. I co-host Catalyst and Witness, a podcast devoted to personal explorations at the New York Film Festival. And so uh, Dan Malloy and I go through the films of the New York Film Festival year by year, and we try to watch as many of them as we can, and we discuss them. And this results in episodes that are even longer than yours. <laughs> but it's, a, I think, a really fruitful exploration of just the way that films can signal both the identity of a festival and the film culture at large. And we're having you on for the next episode. So it's a nice crossover. Yes. Yes. Uh, Who let this guy Marvel on here? What? <laughs> crossover <laughs> event. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, uh, great. That was uh, like a very uh, succinct, very elevator pitch uh, description of the show. Uh, so, like I said, if you're somehow uh, not listening to Catalyst and Witness uh, and listening to this show, you should uh, get on that. Uh, okay, but so back to the subject at hand uh, for our show uh, today, we are going to be discussing three spy films, uh, as Eli alluded to. Uh, Lang's Spies, Joseph von Sternberg and Marlena Dietrich's Dishonored, and uh, Eric Romer's Triple Agent. Uh, I don't really have a super general intro here, uh, other than to say that I've loved uh, spy films going back to my childhood, as we were just talking about uh, before we got started, uh, when I obsessively watched and rewatched all the James Bond films. So this is a genre that I think is somewhat close to my heart, uh, and I, I would have been happy to do this episode just uh, discussing uh, Moonraker, probably, um, but we're not, so that's okay. But I think this will still be fun. So uh, I don't know, Eli or Ryan, do either of you have opening thoughts, or should we just dive into uh, Gold first Gold finger! <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm good. Not really. It's just, it's interesting to see, like, the variety that's, on display here in these spy films. Spy films seems to be somewhat of a more loose genre, if you can really call it a genre. And I think that provides some interesting connections or points of comparison. There actually is something I wanted to mention before I forgot, uh, which is uh, the John Le Carré uh, adaptation of the adaptation of John Le Carré's Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, the miniseries from the, uh, uh, 70s uh, is excellent. Um, uh, I know that Evan wanted to read it first and, and wouldn't have been able to before we recorded, so um, we ended up not going with it, but I would really recommend that people check that out if this subject interests you at all. 
Yeah, I mean, Lakara is is wonderful, and I uh, I love uh, his novels, but I just haven't gotten to that one yet. So maybe we'll have to do a, a Lakara uh, special uh, somewhere down the line. But I'll get to the the show eventually. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think Ryan, what you're saying about these films, like having sort of a loose loose uh, genre association, I think is true. Uh, there's something about each of these films that despite playing in this particular sandbox of the spy movie, um, is very much, uh, tuned in and tied to the specific interests of, uh, the filmmakers, uh, you know, and their whole bodies of work. So I think, um, that'll be fun to get into. So, uh, I think let's just, uh, get right into, uh, Lang's spies. And, uh, I think, I guess we're better to start with this movie than, uh, the opening oh. of this movie, which is, <laughs> I, I mean, this is a very pro Lang podcast. Uh, this is, should be the case because uh, we're clearly named after uh, a Lang uh, reference, but um, for my money, at least on a certain day of the week, if you ask me the greatest thing that Lang ever filmed is the opening of uh, spies, which is just this sort of insane, uh, montage of information being transferred and transmitted and intercepted, um, which really sets, I think, the stage for this movie's interest in uh, the way that technology and um, systems uh, inform the business of spying, and that it really, uh, I think, indicates the extent to which Lang understands this society, uh, sort of this like late Weimar uh, society is uh, a deeply um, like interconnected series of uh, sort of like informational nodes. And the movie uh, is, I think, really in a lot of ways about uh, how these characters move through uh, all this information. And I think the opening uh, sets that up really beautifully. So I don't know. Well, the opening, as you've said, uh, is... Uh, meant to give uh, a general sense of uh, confusion and hysteria, and it's quite successful at that. Um, what brings it all together, uh, though, is um, Hagi, played by um, Rudolf Klein-Roga, if I'm pronouncing that right, right um, coming in at the end of that sequence to... Uh, announced to the audience that he is, in fact, the one behind all these things. And uh, this is uh, an evolution of uh, the Mabusa figure from um, Lang's Mabusa the Gambler, uh, but I think it's even more effective here um, in this film, and not just because of that, um, because he seems um, like his operation is impregnable throughout the film. Um, he is in this uh, office that uh, is almost like a void, um, and he's already very successful. Uh, he, throughout the film, seems to be in complete control, and it's the... Uh, We'll get to this later, of course, but it's the uh, dissolution of that control that uh, causes the ending, in a way, to be as 
um, hysterical as hysterical as in hysteria, not humor, uh, as the opening. Um, but we can talk about that later. I got ahead of myself. Yeah, sure. That makes sense, and I I do think that the opening is just one of the most incredible sequences of film I've seen, and I there is something in the way that both that the editing and how quick these scenes out are, how quick it cuts between figures and Lang's visualization of that. There's a man riding on a motorcycle that it's something like, I don't know exactly how to describe it. It's sort of like rear projection, but it's more like the suggestion of it that causes it to have such a, uh, such a, it, it just feels like it has such an impulse to it. It's such, it's so propulsive in the way that it conveys this sense of almost glee. You see the man who's writing it grinning from ear to ear and, yes. mm-hmm. and the, and the way that all comes back together with the, the introduction of Hagi uh, and his, his proclamation ict, I did it is conveyed in this exaggerated inner title font that just really brings out all of this, Hysteria brings it all to a climax before the film even really gets going. Um, yeah, I, to, I'm sorry. Did you want to go ahead? Uh, to uh, Ryan's point about the uh, grin on the motorcyclist's face, I, I think that is pertinent, uh, not just for him, but for everyone else uh, in the opening sequence. Uh, everyone's uh, facial expressions are very exaggerated. Uh, this is uh, obviously the end of the silent era, uh, and while uh, other directors had uh, and other actors uh, had perfected uh, naturalism in uh, silent movie acting, this movie uh, I think perfects expressionism in that way. Uh, everyone uh, and everyone's actions in this film are um, so stylized and. Um, over the top that uh, it gives you the uh, impression of a uh, almost uh, madcap world, or at least it would be if um, these expressions weren't also uh, borderline horrific. Yeah, I mean, it's like a world that's like a spinning top that's just like about to tip over is kind of the sense that you have throughout the whole movie. I think it has this like whirling dervish kind of quality. I think actually something that, Ryan, you're getting at with the opening is like the energy that the movie has, like you said, the propulsion. And I think this is really the apotheosis of Lang's ability to create this sense of movement without really ever moving his camera uh, which I think is maybe the, the like the defining stylistic characteristic of his uh, silent films. Really, um, he there's something about the way that he composes these like geometric compositions and then smashes them together uh, with his editing that makes it feel like there's just this insane movement, uh, even though every image itself is um, fixed in terms of the the camera uh, itself. Um, and the opening, I think, is is kind of the, the greatest uh, example of that. Uh, I thought it also, I wanted to return briefly to, uh, Eli, what you had said about the connection between uh, Spies and Dr. Mabusa der Spieler, uh, which is a movie I love. But one thing I think is kind of fascinating about this film in comparison to that is the sense that this film 
though clearly taking place in the same historical era, feels like almost a totally different epoch. Like he, Lang seems to conceive of what's happening in Spies, I think in a way that is even more um, anti-psychological than what's happening in Dr. Mabusa. There's, I think, this sense that all the systems that uh, control this society are uh, sort of running at such a speed that everything's sort of coming off the rails. Um, And you get, instead of Mabusa's hypnotic powers, which are fundamentally psychological uh, as the mechanism of control, uh, here, Hagi is, as you say, locked in this room, and his, the vision of him as spy master and as sort of controller of this universe of the movie is as a switchboard operator, basically, uh, which I think is just like a fascinating uh, way that Lang conceives of, of what power uh, is in this society. Well, he is so powerful because he is wealthy. He uh, is said to, he says himself that he has um, more money than Ford. Uh, and he and pays less he, on taxes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I don't think Ford necessarily paid too many taxes, but <laughs> so I think that's the joke. Um, so, yes, it, it this almost seems like he got bored of having so much money so we decided to use that money to create uh chaos uh which uh is not exactly the same uh drive that mabusa has i I don't believe that he uh well i'm getting into later mabusa stuff which doesn't really count but um it's it's interesting that um this drive for uh, I think chaos in itself would be uh, reflected in the testament of Dr. Mabusa. But uh, mm-hmm. about Hagi, uh, I guess I'll be the one to point this out. He looks exactly like Lenin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> it's just not just a coincidence, clearly, because there's also the plot point uh, that, you know, one of his agents, uh, the, the female lead of this movie, uh, was, um, you know, is Russian, and you have ties to um, Russian history. I am not inclined to think that Lang is making any specific political statement here, though. I think that it's more the audience would would have certainly known what Lenin looked like, I think, and would have seen him as a, a, a foreign uh, infiltrator uh, and a, a uh, genius of you know, taking power. Uh, and I think that is the real reason why um, Roga as Hagi is meant to look like Lenin. But what do you two think? Yeah, I don't know if it's a specifically a political gesture, but I think it maybe just simply to to sort of demonstrate how how leaders can have a certain look how they can influence certain events by their sort of odd charisma and i think that Hagi definitely has this sort of charisma that goes hand in hand with his with his ability to control things through this new technology and i think that he just has one of the most striking faces i've ever seen um, in a film it's just so transporting in an odd way just the way that his eyes sort of glisten I think that really does quite a bit of work throughout Spice. 
Well, and I think it gets to, again, this sense that whatever psychology was present in the Mabusa figure, who's clearly a precursor, but I mean, Der Spieler ends with Mabusa having like a psychological breakdown. It's hard to imagine uh, that as something that's possible for Hagi because he really is just a series of masks. The movie is, you know, the sort of the trajectory of the movie is to slowly pull back Hoggy's various masks, but under each one is just another mask. And so the sense that he, or whatever resemblance uh, he bears to Lenin, I think it just, again, suggests that there isn't like a real underlying ideology here. It, in an, it, it, whatever ideology is present is itself just another form of a mask that, that he wears. And um, I think it just, when he gets up in the, towards the end of the film, out of the wheelchair that he's sat in for the whole movie as Hoggy. Um, again, you just get the sense that this beard that he wears that looks like Lennon is, is just false. And um, the image is, is just what matters because it's the image that I think as Ryan's suggesting gives him some control. Um, and yeah, I don't think Lang is particularly interested in Lennon. It's just that uh, the way that images and uh, the way leaders portray themselves um, can influence things is I think where he's, he's interested. Right. I love that scene where he, where he stands up and, and sort of like when he, when seemingly all his cards are on the table, he, he puts down another one and he, it seems that gesture feels like there's an unlimited array of secrets that Hagi possesses and will always possess that only reinforces this, the sense of confusion, the sense of, of, of danger present within his figure. Do you think that if, if this were something that were possible slash had uh, been uh, something that Lang might've considered uh, that uh, Hoggy would be an artificial intelligence uh, a machine? Obviously that is not, I'm certainly not saying that's what happened in the film. It's not, um, but uh, I think the fact that there is no person there uh, means that if there was a way in this script that he could have been an automaton, he would have been, if that makes sense. Uh, no, I think that's spot on. I mean, I think Lang even gestures closer to that with that image of uh, in the Testament of Dr. Mabusa where they pull back the curtain and there's just nothing. It's just like a voice box. Um, and he gets, I'd argue, even closer to that in uh, The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabusa. So I think you're right that Lang is, is Lang's such an intuitive filmmaker for someone who's so um, geometric and precise. I, I think the way he actually thinks about uh, the events of his movies is, uh, is deeply intuitive. I don't think he would ever put it that way, but I think you're right on that that's, he intuits something about the nature of Hoggy and the nature of like power and modernity that uh, is pushing him towards uh, a sort of consciousness that is uh, bodiless um, in a way that I don't think he'd articulate, but is totally present in this movie. You know, we haven't talked about Agent 326 at all, and I think that's interesting because uh, he is the ostensible hero protagonist of this film, but we, we've just been focusing on Hoggy, which I, I think, you know says something uh, about how this film actually plays out. Right. I don't think that... Well, I, I think that he serves the the role that he has to play in the narrative particularly well, but I don't think that he's nearly as a compelling a 
screen presence or even a narrative presence as Haki. Oh, I agree. Um, but um, to touch on him, um, because I think we kind of have to, uh, <laughs> I, I, I do think that uh, his introduction uh, is, is very interesting if you compare it to Mabusa the Gambler because he's dressed, you know, like a bum, um, like uh, someone who's on hard times. And in uh, the silent Mabusa, there is a very long, in my opinion, too long, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm referring to. I know what you're referring to. Search about, uh, you know, this worker who becomes un- unemployed and is on hard times. Uh, and that is something that I don't think that Lang was particularly interested in. Uh, and it's really, uh, the condition of society is just, that is your only real hint of, of that there might be any uh, poverty here. Everything else in the film is uh, high-class, uh, you know, upper-class, I should say, uh, society and the schemes and blackmail within that strata. Uh, and for what this film is, I think that works uh, because I don't know that at least at this point in his career, Lang was a great social filmmaker, so I think that is uh, an improvement <laughs> upon the silent Mabusa, which I, I do very much like otherwise. Um, uh, but yes, back to Agent 326. I, I do like that intro um, too, uh, because uh, not because of him, uh, but because of the actual um, spy working for Hagi who as that scream laughing at the end uh, which goes back into the glee of the motorcyclist in the opening sequence and that's an interesting point uh, I, I do want to get back to 326's disguise for a little bit because it seems like a now that I know the whole picture it seems like an inversion of Hagi's final scene in a way, in that he's in three twenty six is introduced as in disguise, and we have no clue that he is a spy until he discovers the hidden camera on Hagi's spy. That's an interesting point. Well, the other thing that I thought was uh, or kind of occurred to me watching the film uh, this time, I think it was the third or fourth time I had seen it, and in my memory, certainly Hagi is the thing that stands out. I'd kind of forgotten just how much, as you alluded to, the film is focused on Agent 36, there are 326, and the uh, relationship between him and uh, Hagi's agent um, when they fall in love. And I don't really think of Lang as, as particularly uh, skilled with the romantic scenes that crop up uh, in his films on occasion. But I was actually like weirdly moved uh, this time in a way I hadn't been previously uh, by their initial courtship uh, and uh, kind of their, the trajectory of their relationship uh, throughout this film. Um, it seemed to me that there was a little bit more of like a human heart at the core of uh, this movie than um, something like the Testament of Dr. Mabusa, which really feels, um, like tremendously bleak. Um, and I was, again, just a little surprised that I found, uh, 
the emotional stakes in this one uh, more present this time this time around. I find it compelling, but not necessarily because of their romance, more because of um, her actually almost Sternbergian um, choice between passion and uh, what she feels, at, at least at the time, is her duty to Hoggy, but more importantly to her um, late family members. Um, so I find it compelling for that reason, not necessarily the love story itself, uh, which isn't to say it's executed poorly, but isn't, I guess, for me, the more interesting part of the film. Yeah, that's interesting. I do, I think I'm sort of with Eli there in that I think that the scenes maybe are executed well, the individual scenes, but as a whole, I didn't really get the place of it in Spies until the train crash, where where 326 is almost killed by Hagi after after interfering one too many times in his in his schemes and then Sonia discovers that that uh, that he that 326 was almost killed and so she rushes over to the train crash and they escape together and I think that scene really made it all click for me I think that sort of conflict between between duty and and love really comes to a head there and i think it maybe provides a sort of reinforcement of that of the love that she felt for her family and you see a short visualization of that of their sentencing to death a flashback of that and i think that maybe those two those two strands connect at that moment particularly well uh another big strand of this movie well let me get that get it get to it in a little bit of a roundabout way, but it's with uh, how Lady Lelaine is blackmailed. Uh, you, you have that scene of her reclining uh, on a couch. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, and that actually really reminded me, I don't know the exact name of it, but it's this famous, um, very Orientalist painting uh, of uh, um, a woman in, in some... Um, I think it's a Middle Eastern country, maybe, um, reclining on a couch in a very similar way. And I'm not sure if that was intentional, but it's a way of, you know, roundabout way of getting to the uh, uh, Orientalist nature of the movie, which I'm not entirely critical of because I think that in context it works and has a lot of very beautiful shots to it. Yeah, I mean, I think we've when we talked way back at the beginning of this show, uh, not the beginning of this episode, but the beginning of this podcast uh, about the Indian epic, we sort of, I think, touched a little bit on uh, Lang's preference, his interest in Orientalism, which I think was a just a large current in uh, German uh, art at the time. Um, so in some ways, I think he's interested in it because that's sort of what was uh, floating out there as a... Uh, sort of epiphenomena in the culture. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, it's present in the movie. I don't really find anything that Lang does with it particularly off-putting. I think, actually, I did sort of note watching it this time. What I found off-putting about it was the score. I don't know uh, which version of the film you guys watched, but the score that I watched it with was a Donald Sosin, uh, like, piano score. I'm actually not a huge fan of him anyways, but... 
there's like all this weird orientalist like trinkly music in the score whenever the Japanese uh, characters come on screen and I thought that was a way stranger uh, choice than anything Lang does visually I don't really find that what he does visually uh, you know is is anything particularly uh, offensive but I thought it was very strange that in 2012 or whenever he composed the score that he reverted back to these sort of like you know, ding, 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 like Orientalist um, musical choices. So aside from that, though, I, I think um, it's just a recurring interest of Lang's and uh, it's used here as as part of the sort of suggest the international uh, reach of this organization. Yeah, I, I do. I think I saw the same version of the score, or the same. I saw it with the same score as you did, but I can't really recall if I had any specific gripes with that, but I do find the way that it's incorporated, that the Japanese um, influence or Japanese elements are included to be pretty interesting. And it, I do definitely think that there's some incredible images that are drawn out of that. The the scene of, of the head of security, Masamoto, uh, committing harakiri is really striking in the way that just how how wide and how expansive Lang makes the scene, the room that he's that he's committing harakiri in and the sort of visualization of these three agents their sort of ghosts returning and the in superimposition of the Japanese flag the rising sun to be kind of moving uh, I of course, the use of, of yellow face doesn't really work for me, but I think it's a really interesting way to bring out also the sort of the sort of abstraction of it because this treaty between the Japanese and whichever country spice takes place in is purposefully there's nothing that specifies what actually makes it important other than the fact other than the fact that it is, and I think that's a really interesting touch that, that's a good point about the treaty and um i i think it's uh interesting if we compare uh that to like a hitchcockian MacGuffin, because i don't think that they work in the same way even though on the surface they could be viewed as similar um because you know in hitchcock it is literally just uh, an excuse for uh, the characters to in interact in the way that they do. Uh, and not that I'm dismissing Hitchcock, but uh, the way that it works in Lang, I, I think, is more um, this is how, even though it doesn't specifically matter what is in here, it is very specifically information and exactly. something that is pertinent to society. And totally. how society I think that's works, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Well, and I and the thing that indicates that more clearly than anything else is the detail with which Lang, even though he gives us no sense of what the treaty is, mm -hmm. uh, shows how the treaty is going to be transmitted out of the country safely uh, into the hands of the Japanese government, um, which is sort of one of my favorite sequences in the movie, right. uh, where Matsumoto gives each of his couriers, uh, three of them, a copy of the treaty. Uh, and they're all going to take different routes back to Tokyo. Um, each of them is killed uh, en route by Hagi's uh, operatives. 
And as they reveal each treaty inside, it's just nothing again. I mean, it, it just sort of in miniature replicates the the unmasking that I think occurs in macro with, with Hoggy. Uh, behind this information is really just nothing. It's just newspaper uh, clippings. And there's another plan that Matsumoto has that uh, we're not aware of uh, to transmit the treaty, which is ultimately um, thwarted. But um, again, I think you're totally right, Eli, that focus on not what the informi- information is exactly, but how uh, it's move, how it moves through uh, society and through these channels is um, what's interesting here. And I love how Lang doesn't show how Hockey intercepts the couriers or even his plans. It just cuts to him receiving these these packets. Some of them are spattered with blood, but otherwise you don't really get a sense of how Hockey managed to do it. It only furthers his sense of almost omnipotent influence in this regard. Well, he doesn't, I think in, in some way he doesn't need to show us because Absolutely. that's what the opening of the movie is. I mean we see that and we just know that that's what's occurring. Um, but it, it's, it's it not anything of direct monetary value. And, and I think that that separates it from Mabusa, which I mean, the first Mabusa, uh, yeah. which uh, has a lot about money, uh, people gaining, losing money. Um, money doesn't matter to a man who already has more money than, he could ever know what to do with. Um, at that point, it's about power. Uh, and it's something that for Hagen, at least just can't be bought with money. No one, he can't buy it and no one could buy this information from him. He doesn't care. Uh, and I think that is what Lang was, uh, suggesting is that, uh, at a certain point, uh, the irrationality of money just becomes the irrationality of power, which is the uh, drive for chaos that I, I think is more explicit uh, in the Testament of Dr. Mabusa, but it, it's still um, very present here. Totally. Well, and we haven't mentioned yet that Huggy's headquarters is behind a bank, which is like, there's no way right. to literalize what you said more clearly than having his like power center, uh, wear the mask of being a bank, but that the money itself is actually not what's at the center of the complex. It's something else. Yeah, and we should talk about that complex because just even the few shots we get of it as sort of laying it out, gives the sense of this cavernous space. This one, one of the first shots of it shows these different, it shows sort of a crossroads, I guess. The signs pointing to different areas of it. One says Japan, one of them says the Americas, things like that. And it, and there's this this truly astounding shot of the of these crisscrossing staircases that people are walking up and down. And it it only reinforces the infinite maze like power and sense of control. Hagi has over the information that circulates throughout the world. Yeah, I love that shot of the crisscrossing stairs is like the uh, the emblematic shot of the movie for me when I think of spies. Like that's that's the image. One hundred percent. There's one other image I want to mention. Maybe we should move to talking about the ending of the movie because the ending is uh, 
as amazing as the beginning, really. Uh, but just a little image that I do really love is that shot that's like a sort of bird's eye view of a boxing match that oh, you think right, is occurring right. like in a stadium or something. And then within one shot, the boxing match ends and like instantaneously a flood of dancers come into the ring, basically. Not into the ring itself, but like all around the ring. Um, and you realize that you're actually inside like a dance club and there was a boxing match. And the, the way that that is orchestrated is just like unbelievable to me. Um, oh, how precise it and how quickly it transitions from this boxing match to flooding the dance floor with these dancers the boxers are still in the ring as they come in they're still recovering yeah. from the from, from the fight see that's what i meant by the connection to snake eyes evan <laughs> ah, i forgot that you had mentioned that yeah Another but that's neither film. here nor there <laughs> uh as long as we were mentioning shots one shot i love is from the train crash where it's showing where 326's hand is reaching up through the through the rubble and you see the pendant that Sonia has given him and later and a little bit later on you see him that same hand holding a gun that that sort of abstraction of that hand from the body you just see that it just that that really startled me in a odd way something about the sort of visceral nature nature of well that. there there's and I completely agree uh, I just want to add that I think that there's the shot of her holding the gun earlier when she shoots the person in the hotel, and, you know, that's how they meet. That's another very striking shot. Uh, right. And uh, it's interesting, because in that close-up, um, it almost seems like... I mean, it, at the time, it is divorced from context, the way that it is uh, introduced into the movie. Um and it's it's just another really striking uh, example, something mm -hmm. that always sticks out to me when I think about this movie. Well, I mean, you could basically create a two-hour cut of this movie, probably. It's just insert shots. <laughs> I mean, Lang has always been one of the great insert, insert shot filmmakers, and I think this Spies in particular is probably the most extreme example of that. Like you're saying, that... Uh, when it cuts to the shot of uh, her holding the gun, it's like quite emblematic of how he moves, like the tr literally transitions between scenes in this movie. Like he goes, um, he opens scenes frequently with an insert shot, which is very uh, strange uh, and disorienting. And then he basically then pulls back to show you that uh, whatever object he was uh, shooting very closely uh, within context, um, I think is a, is a pattern that you see throughout this movie. Absolutely. There, and the, I, I can't, I think there's also, I, I'm not entirely certain if there's an insert shot of his desk, but, well, there's probably a few throughout the film, but the detail of it, the way, the detail of the switchboard, the, and the sort of slots that he has in his desk where documents and newspapers and things fly out of, that's really, really neat in a certain way. So the ending, uh, I'll summarize it as a bank director starts clowning around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, yeah, the, such a bizarre performance, such a bizarre, like, in terms of actual stage performance, because there's these musical notes, these giant musical notes that, that Hagi in disguise is shooting. I, I don't really know how to describe it. 
Well, I think it's important, too, that the movie suggests, as we talked about already, that moment where he stands up, um, that we've maybe seen, like, the real Hoggy in some sense, that he's revealed something. And then the movie almost literalizes that uh, sense that we have that maybe we're getting to the the inner sanctum of Hoggy as a joke by having the movie end with him literally in a clown costume. Like, there is nothing that you are going to be able to access about uh, this person. And yeah, it is a very uh, strange way to end the movie. I think the first time you watch it, uh, at least for me, I was like kind of puzzled that this is where the movie was ending up. Um, But then you start to realize that the performance that he's giving is slowly being uh, like entrapped by the operatives um, of whatever the, the government network and agent 326. And he actually has to give the performance where he's like shooting at these musical notes. Um, like he gives the performance while simultaneously trying to hide the fact that he's trying to shoot his adversaries right. uh, while performing. Um but- well, the character, in a way, has been giving a performance for the whole movie. Exactly. But this is, he's not giving his own, uh, he's not giving a performance on his own terms anymore. Right. Yep, I think that's exactly it. The shots of the government agents just in the orchestra pit all pointing guns at him. It's just... and, and the, oh, that yeah. is, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I, that, the way that Lang like dissects the whole space of the stage by having Hoggy like look around. And at each point where he fixes his eyes, there's an operative with like a gun staring him down is such a Langian way of like slicing up uh, a space into these like geometric uh, pieces that he gives you the full space of the theater um, by doing that. And that's like one thing I just, I love about Lang is his ab- ability to, um, make you feel like you understand exactly like all the eye lines and where everyone is uh, sort of physically located in this space. Definitely. And how 326 and Sonia, after all this heroic effort, they're reduced to this one part of the geometric space and then they're shot at. And so they flee and you never see them after that. It's just Hagi after that, before he uh, commits his final theatrical gesture. Yeah, and the final theatrical gesture, of course, is him shooting himself <laughs> on stage. Uh, there is, I cannot imagine watching the end of this movie when this came out. I think, uh, Eli, you had said that the ending itself, like, is a kind of hysteria, and I think that's so right. Like, the way living in Weimar society, I imagine, felt like the world was about to collapse around you, and this movie, like, literally ends with the most insane, literal curtain shot of just, like, <laughs> boom, the curtain slams down after he shoots himself, and that's it, the end. And the movie's <laughs> over, like, in a half a second after that. I mean, it is the most just, like, flee out of the theater, like, everything is on fire <laughs> ending you could possibly imagine. It's it's also, uh, I think, a great way to close out the silent era, in a way. Not that that was on the minds of Lang and, and Harpo. I obviously wasn't, but um, inadvertently, I, I think that uh, for me, this film um, is the curtain call of the, of the silent film era. That it, it takes everything um, about silent expressionism to its breaking point. Uh, and it is 
a three out of five. No, it's <laughs> <laughs> masterpiece. So yeah. Okay, well, I think that's a good, great place to end. So let's uh, take a little break, and then we'll be uh, back to discuss Joseph von Sternberg's Dishonored. You excite me. You know, most people think of death as a very ugly old man. I think of death as a beautiful young woman wearing flowers. All right, we're back uh, with our second film, Joseph von Sternberg's Dishonored from 1931. Uh, although, uh, I'm told that uh, von Sternberg was unhappy with the title, which was a, a studio choice. Uh, he, he said, it's not, it shouldn't be called Dishonored. She wasn't Dishonored, she was shot. <laughs> uh, I do agree, it's a kind of odd title. Yes, uh, but amazing movie uh that's one of my very favorites even more so on rewatch uh all of the um i've i've seen all of the uh sternberg dietrich collaborations except for blonde venus and other than the blue angel which i'm not necessarily a huge fan of i think they're all incredible um but dishonored i i think uh, hasn't necessarily received the exact same amount of attention as the others have, uh, which is unfortunate because it is just as great. Um, it opens um, th- this first shot uh, of uh, this lantern and uh, a gutter seeping with rain, um, and that lighting within lighting is very Sternbergian. And then we have this great, um, our introduction to Dietrich is that she's standing in the rain and adjusting, uh, a stocking on her leg, um, before turning around, then turning around again, um, to see all these people pouring into a building. And then we get this, great shot of her uh in medium uh, and she has this net over her head and this hat uh and uh, you know evan had mentioned had messaged me after he had rewatched this that dishonored made him straight and yeah I- <laughs> <laughs> it's sorry true. Evan, it's true <laughs> no that's okay I, I, I forgot i had said that actually but it's true and I, I have to concur. Because, uh, Dietrich is uh, amazing in this, uh, and Sternberg gives her one of the greatest introductions in any movie in this movie. Um, and with that, there's so much to talk about, so I really do want to open it up um, to whoever wants to go next. Oh, I'll sort of... I, I, I will say that I'm not entirely, I'm not nearly as well-versed in von Sternberg as I like. Actually, for all three of these directors, I'm not really that well-versed. And I think that for von Sternberg, I'm he definitely feels like the kind of director that I'll still be trying to get a real handle on for years to come. I've only seen this, Morocco, and uh, Anadahan, which I love Anadahan, but it feels obviously very different from this in Morocco. And I think that... I do really love a lot of what Dishonor is going for, but 
at a certain point, I'm still not entirely certain how I feel about it. It's kind of, I don't know why it's like that, but I think just something about his sparseness, the sparseness that I feel from von Sternberg really characterizes and colors the film for me in a way that I'm still not entirely, I'm still puzzling out. Yeah, I think right. the way you uh, just... Evan, you, Evan, can you uh, kick Ryan? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I find sparsest, I... Uh, and I'm not trying to be rude. I don't see this film as sparse at all. I see this film as... Uh, if anything, I could see not liking it because it's too much. Oh, interesting. Uh, although I, I love it. Um, because I think this film is uh, in basically every shot uh, just littered to the brim. Uh, with mise-en-scene. Well, I think, I think I kind of understand what you're getting at with sparseness in a way, though, Ryan. Like, I, Eli, you're totally right that the movie is totally, uh, like, voluptuous in its way and just stuffed with so many things. Um, but there is a way in which, and I don't quite know how to put my finger on it, like, Sternberg leaves a lot out. For everything that he puts into his movies, he leaves a lot of sort of more conventional uh, things out of the movie. And I think one thing you even sense in this film is just how dead the air is in the movie, right. which I think somewhat gets to that. And I think that's actually the the way that many of Sternberg's films uh, operate in terms of the sound design. You get this really, um, at the opening shot that you're talking about, you were talking about Eli, you get this really um, strange focus on the sound of the water, like dripping in the gutter. And it's like the only thing you hear on the soundtrack. Um, and the rest of the movie is like as detailed to little sounds like that, but it's not like a fully sculpted sonic world. There's all this dead air. Uh, which is somewhat emblematic of like early sound films, but which Sternberg seems to prefer uh, that kind of silence more than uh, than most. Uh, and so I, I think I can kind of see what you're getting at, Ryan. But for me, this was one of the Sternberg films that I didn't, I mean, I, I still thought it was great, but that I didn't like quite as much. But watching it again, I found it just so outrageous like the stuff that occurs in this movie is just ridiculous uh that i really do kind of now think it's it's one of his greatest movies um i mean i mean when when they go into her uh when i say they i mean uh the head of the secret service and, and dietrich at the very beginning of the movie when they go into her apartment uh they're in the background in the foreground are these little figurines uh like a fairies or something they're hanging from the ceiling that's what sternberg is focusing on at the at the uh beginning of the scene uh when they're uh, all in shadow and and even when the lights come on they you know reappear uh again and, and they get a they get a close up that is uh you know i i, I think as Okay, not as striking as the teacher close-ups, but more striking than some close-ups in uh, most movies is, is the thing. Uh, and then I, I don't think that any director or actor had any better um, working relationship in, in terms of the 
product that came out than uh, Sternberg and Dietrich did. At the risk of hyperbole, that is my contention. Yeah, I mean, definitely inclined to agree with you there. Dietrich is really incredible in the way that she inhabits this role, which I think that to some degree it is kind of a difficult role because in many ways, even though she's the center of the film, it's kind of unreadable in a certain sense. Part of that is definitely related to her actual her actual duty as a spy, but part of it is just in the way that you're never quite sure what she's what her ultimate motives are or aims are. It's she doesn't seem to be necessarily someone one hundred percent totally committed to a national cause or anything like that. Is much more about her own sense of self assurance or self or trying to seek a definition for herself. I think that's fair. Um, I I don't think that we can really, not that I'm suggesting that you were saying this, but I don't think that one can necessarily fault the film for her motivations being unclear because I think it is clear that to her, she doesn't know why she does the things that she does in this film. Definitely. Um, I, I love when, uh, again, near the beginning when she has the head of the Secret Service arrested, <laughs> uh, uh, she walks to the camera and yes. uh, you get this great close-up. I'm going to be saying the words close-up <laughs> a lot. And but, great. <laughs> yeah. But close-ups and the, the great double images that Sternberg does later in this film are uh, you know, the two hallmarks of his style that um, always stick out to me. Yeah, I mean, I think part of um, maybe to return both to Ryan, your comment on the film being somewhat sparse and the extent that we don't really understand Dietrich as a character, something uh, that I thought uh, again about watching uh, this uh, for the second time was just how hermetically sealed uh, the world of this movie and I think of in many cases of the Sternberg Dietrich movies more generally feels uh, like there's this sense in spies, for example, of this, like, you know, these kind of fingers that reach out into everything. Um, and Dishonored seems to take place in this like weird uh, airsats Europe that has like four buildings and like a prison and, and like, that's it. Uh, and there's something about, the extent to which both Sternberg and the Dietrich character, like their only motivation is to create these images and kind of everything else doesn't matter. And so the, the extent to which Dietrich's character has a motivation and we'll get to this, we will certainly get to this. Uh, I think the ending makes it very clear that the motivation is really about crafting an image. And that's precisely what attracts her to being a spy is the extent to which she is merely performing a series of images and loves the control uh, over herself and over others that she gets by being the manipulator of her own self image. And I think that's the heart of the movie's vision of her as a spy and what it means to be a spy um, is, is precisely that, that control over her image. That fucking 
is it a carnival or the new or is it New Year's Eve? I actually not <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It looks like uh, New Year's Eve to me. But. I I couldn't tell. It's just I I can't really. Well, I mean, just like you can't place where this exactly is in terms of you know the the uh, there are only a few buildings. Uh, I don't think that time necessarily matters, even though this does obviously take place in Austria in Vienna. Um, but <laughs> whoa, uh, I think that when you said sparseness, I was thinking oh, of the yeah. carnival yeah. <laughs> scene, and, and was just sort of confused. But <laughs> I, I see that's what fair. you mean a bit more now. But that is such a lush and over the top uh, sequence. It, it, it is certainly. I am in love with this movie. <laughs> yeah, like, like that's a that's a really fascinating scene. It's and even in there, it only seems to focus on four or five different characters, and there's only really three characters that ultimately return from that scene. But the way that Sternberg manages to connect all of these different characters through the use of sort of balloons as conveyance mechanisms, or the sort of uh, the um, party fevers that circulate throughout the the scene is really lush and there's just so much confetti around that I have no idea how much they used on that, but there's just so much stuff in that scene that is ultimately meant to be just stuff, but it's just photographed really beautifully. But it's stuff that is presented on the same level as the actors and other than um, Dietrich and McLaughlin who and we'll talk about him. We haven't really touched on uh, his character yet. Um, for all the other actors, the bric-a-brac, I think, is placed higher on the totem pole other than for the two leads uh, in Sternberg's uh, eye. Um, you know, the mask that Dietrich wears in this uh, in this scene, uh, you know, Evan said that this movie made him straight. That mask alone is scared. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Um, <laughs> but uh, just like, I mean, not just like hockey, uh, but if we can uh, connect it to our last film, uh, Dietrich is giving a, a performance. Uh, her character is also giving a performance uh, throughout the film. And what you said about the ending, which we can um, discuss further later, uh, uh, I think is salient because... Um, just like in this scene, she is putting on airs as a spy, as a vamp, you know? That is who she is trying to be. And uh, it's interesting that in this film, um, McLaughlin is the, um, I think, only one who, you know, can see her as she is, which is, you know, someone who is duplicitous by nature, but that is what connects them together. Uh, and, and that is, I think, what makes their romance oddly moving. Yeah, but I I'm, mean, I just get that's what he, bit. that's what he loves about her. And I, I mean, I'm certainly not the first person to say this, uh, but the extent to which each one of these Sternberg Dietrich films is like a little essay on the perversion of their own relationship is like very clear in that regard. I think at some point he 
uh, says to her that most people think of death as an ugly man. And I think of death as a beautiful woman wearing flowers. Uh, and he also says, I think he accuses her of like, you trick men into death with your body. <laughs> it's like that. And of course she, she is not afraid of life, nor is she afraid of death. And that, and it's that, that closeness to death, the, uh, potential for, uh, like self immolation that Dietrich provides. That is, uh, like the very thing that I think is attractive to Sternberg about, uh, Dietrich, uh, so yeah, I mean their relationship is clearly a, a key part of uh, what's going on in this movie, right? I think that when I say sparseness, I was really surprised by how I think, like you were saying, the sealing off of it because there's only really two focal points, I guess you could say, of Dietrich's spycrafts. The there's the the colonel that she manages to to unmask which I think that's my favorite scene in the film, just her slowly moving through this house and trying to figure out how to how to bring him down. And then there's McLaughlin's character, which, and that takes up the rest of the film, and I wasn't expecting that part. Oh, you mean narratively? Yeah, narratively, makes, yes. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, I, I agree in that sense, definitely. Um, well, let's, can we talk for just a minute about her spycraft in particular? Because that is one thing I also really love about this movie is uh, the way that she, like, functions as a spy and, like, communicates information is through music, basically, oh, is right, her, like, right. primary tool. Uh, and she, like, that shot that you were talking about, Eli, where she comes uh, up into the close-up, like, walks into the camera, she then actually, like, sits down and starts playing the piano, which is our first oh, introduction yeah. to her, like, interest in music. And she uses that uh, to code uh, information uh, that she's capturing as part of her spying, which is, like, such a um, strange way uh, to conceive of what the work of being a spy is and is again very closely tied, I think, to um, Dietrich's role as performer. Like her spying is almost like an extension of her like cabaret singer kind of persona. Like she's playing the piano and putting on a show, but really every note that she hits on the piano is, you know, communicating some Morse code information about, uh, you know, documents that she's uh, stolen or something like that. Um, well, you know, you you had mentioned the sound design earlier, and and. Um... Well, I agree that it has an unusual sound design. Um, wh what I love about these uh, films is that, uh, in a way, yes, they, they do operate as silent films with sound tacked on, but in another way, they have really sophisticated and interesting use of sound design. Um, like Most of the music in this uh, movie is diegetic. Uh, and it also serves, as you pointed out, a, a very key uh, plot point. And for 1931, I, I think that was when people were still trying to figure out how sound should work in films. Uh, I think that was um, quite extraordinary. And even today, um, I don't think many films use sound in such a memorable way as this film does. Yeah, that's a interesting point. And I... And I think that's a, just a further reinforcement of Dietrich's character because we're never privy to just how this music that she's composing functions in terms of a, of conveying information because you there's only seven notes or if you're if you're not counting 
flats or sharps on the on the mu musical scale and the way that she one of the best scenes for me also is when she's trying to when she's reconstructing what she had written down for by memory and she's playing the music and then she turns every two or three bars to write down what she what she had composed and that that's a unusually quick scene for the film but the way that conveys the conveyance of information in a in a striking way works really well for the film now obviously anime wong is the best person to ever go up against Dietrich in one of these movies but mclaughlin i think is a very strong second uh and i think definitely the strongest um male lead in um in a sternberg movie when i've seen um he enjoys his role um i mean his character enjoys his role as a spy as much as um dietrich does and uh that is why i think they have so much chemistry on screen together yeah, I mean, the image I have of him in my mind throughout this movie is just, he's like grinning ear to ear the whole movie, Definitely. basically. Um, yeah, he's clearly having as much fun as the Dietrich is. And I, I think you're right that that's somewhat unique in the, like, Dietrich to other, like, to the men in the movie, uh, or in, in the relationship between Dietrich and the men in the other Sternberg movies, that is somewhat unique because typically they're, like, being spun around her finger. And here he is... He occasionally lets himself be spun around her finger, but then, like, it kind of pulls back because he actually himself is somewhat in control. And the um, the dance of their control over one another is uh, more equal, uh, I think, than uh, it often is. Well, one of the and I am skipping to the end part again, but when he says "see you next war," when we know certainly that she is. Uh, going to be executed um it, it is very sad because for him this is still just a game and um he hasn't realized what she has done um it's a game but like it's also sex i mean that's the other thing that is just like totally outrageous about this movie is the extent to which uh their like spy banter back and forth is just like unbelievably uh raunchy uh evan are you sure sex <laughs> in a stern i know <laughs> I... <laughs> but like there's one shot that i literally like gasped out loud <laughs> watching it again this time which is the scene where she lets him go there's like literally a close-up in this movie of marlena Dietrich's crotch <laughs> like she holds the, this like gun that she's brought in there uh to sort of like, I don't know, control him in case he tries to, I don't know, like uh, overpower her uh, before she lets him escape. And she like holds the gun like right in her crotch and like there's a close up of it. And then she just like drops it to the ground. And like that's the moment at which she's like let go and he's going to escape. And I <laughs> to include that well, in I, like a 1931 I must say I did not. I did not read anything sexual into that specific moment, but that is interesting. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe that I'm watching this right now. I, you might have ruined that scene for me. <laughs> or you might have improved it. I'm not sure. Um, so when she's dressed up as the maid, 
it's interesting because she's not wearing her usual uh, makeup and, and very fancy clothes. So in, in a way, it should be she's dressed down, but that feels much more like a disguise than anything else in the film. Yeah, definitely. And that, I, that, that scene of her just um, uh, with the other, with the other soldier and she's meowing on, on top of a, of a dresser or something like that. <laughs> oh, we haven't talked about it. I, I forgot about that scene. Oh my we, God. We have yet to talk about one of the greatest cats. Oh, definitely. That's a great, great cat. The, yeah. The, and it's a black cat too. Like that's a, that's a really interesting touch. And she repeatedly refers to it as bringing her good luck. And, yeah, I, I, do we see her uh, the cat after she's imprisoned? I, I can't. No, she she's at first, at first, um, she says that it brings her luck, and then she's asked to clarify whether it's good luck or bad. Oh, right, right. And I love that. But what was your question? Uh, do we see the do we see the cat after she's imprisoned? The, wait, yeah, she's carrying uh, she it. She right? gives it. Yeah, she gives it to the priest. Right, right. Uh, that's right. Where she's shot. Right. Yeah, the the cat as, it, the, the. But I like how they point out that you know she gets caught because uh, in Russia because of the cat, and <laughs> I just it, I can't such, stop laughing at that scene. To bring it, but he points it out, and she just like yeah, no, why not? Uh, I told, just, I forgot about that game. scene where she gets the guy drunk as like meowing. <laughs> so ridiculous. God, this movie is wonderful. <laughs> it, it invites you into how ridiculous it is. It knows how ridiculous it is. But at the same time, I don't think that negates it from being a very moving work of art. And that's uh, no, totally. really special about it. Well, uh, okay, if we're going to talk about how it's moving, we have to talk about the end. So should we? Uh, before we do that, um, back to the scene with the... Um, was it the, the colonel? I, I don't remember what his position was, but the the first guy that um, she ensnares. Um, I love that shot of her reflection playing the piano, um, and I just wanted to point that out um, because the pi- uh, piano is, is such uh, an important motif in this film, and um, for me, uh, that is. Um, one of the things that I definitely think about uh, when it comes to this film. The other thing I thought that was worth mentioning, I guess, before we get to the ending, is just how totally uh, like perfunctory her like becoming a spy is. Like one thing that is so strange about this movie is that it exists. Again, it's so hermetically sealed. Like it exists solely to be this movie about her as a spy. And so we get the, like for that one shot, basically that, or the couple shots that you described at the beginning, Eli, she's not a spy. And then like pretty much immediately, she just, because of her looks is just immediately thrown into this world of being a spy. Well, it's not just because of her looks. Well, not. Uh, and she's, she was selling sex at the beginning. Right. Cause I was just going to uh, say the other thing that, I, well, uh, she is selling sex at the beginning. And I think one thing that the movie, uh, does is draw like a pretty clear parallel between uh, espionage and prostitution. I think he asks her the like secret service director of the secret service asks her um, as he's first approaching her, like, would you like to make some easy money? 
which is like very clearly a reference to, as you're saying, her selling uh, sex, but also, uh, you know, very clearly a proposition to join the uh, Secret Service. And I think that uh, thread throughout um, just is also what makes the movie feel so uh, like kind of dirty <laughs> to me. Um, I mean, that's a, what she's doing with her stocking um, at the beginning is, um, you know, meant to be uh, an enticement of sorts, even though there's no one around. So it's just enticing the audience. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then when she does it at the end, I think it's actually um, very moving. And, you know, it is implied that because of what she did, for what she did earlier in retrieving the information that she won for Austria. Um, but uh, she is to be executed uh, anyway because one can never choose passion over duty, which is a, uh, one of the tragedies here. And it is a n- needless killing because the war is over. She won it for them in a way. Um, then there's that, uh, moment right before where the young soldier whom she had met earlier, uh, holds his sword as a mirror so that she could fix her up. Okay, well, let's get to the ending in a second. Ryan, is there anything else you want to talk about before we jump into the ending? I I think I, I really like how the, the scene where she's being brought into become a spy how she's walking through all these these expansive hallways i think that that's sort of it is the closest that the film really comes for me to breaking out of this hermetic seal before it really uh, it really becomes explicit in that way i i think that that works really well um yeah. Well, and I really love at the end, towards the end, when they're like sentencing or like interrogating her, I guess, um, you it replicates a few of those shots. And you get that one shot where like the door opens into the room where she's about to be interrogated, uh, which is like the head of the, the office of the head of the Secret Service. And it's got like the big map on the wall on the back. Um, and there's just this like cadre of, I don't know, like 20 men all in like the identical uh army uniforms just like standing around staring directly into the camera uh right before she approaches in and i i love that shot because i think it suggests um what's sort of been dormant in the movie throughout which is that dietrich's role as a spy is both as like an infiltrator against um austria's enemies but also as like an infiltrator into this very male world i mean she's basically like the only woman present in the film. I know there's a few like waitresses or whatever in the hotel in, in Russia, but um, it's a very male world that she's in. And it's partly the fact that the world is so male that leads to uh, the final like sentencing of her and their willingness to just snuff out uh, her passion. Right. The inner title at the beginning says that she could have been the, the greatest spy in the world if she was not a woman. I think that might have been added by oh, okay. the studio. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Because because it, it's kind of reminds me of like you know what I said at the beginning of the segment. You know, she wasn't dishonored; she was shot. You know <laughs> that, or how a, one of the uh, films is called "The Devil Is a Woman." You know, it might lead you to believe that this is about how 
you know, beware women, they lead men awry. <laughs> it's more like women lead men awry. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, and I just love how her code name is X27. That's just a, like, it, it's su- you such know a... Sternberg picked X for a reason. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, just the raunchiness of this movie. But, okay, so let's let's talk about uh, the final scene, because that is really where this movie, I think, achieves its uh, its total uh, greatness for me. Um, Eli, you already highlighted one of the best gestures in that scene where a soldier uh, pulls out a sword so that she can look into uh, her reflection on the sword and adjust her, uh, was it like her hair net uh, before she's yes. uh, summarily shot? Um, but the other thing I think is really fascinating, well, I guess we just set up the scene, right? So she's uh, now sentenced to death and she's been asked in as her like final request uh, to die in a uniform of her choosing, she says, uh, which is this <laughs> like voluptuous, uh, I don't know, like fur coat. And she's got like kind of the hairnet uh, that she was wearing at the beginning. And she just she's dolled up basically in the you know full uh, kind of Dietrich image. And so that's how she chooses to confront death. Uh, which is quite fascinating. And then she's walked out uh, to this firing squad, which is in this very, um, again, quite sparse, actually, uh, space of like just a courtyard with these huge tall walls and you can't see above the wall. So she's in this very um, uh, like brutalist kind of looking space. Uh, and there's this row of men that are going to shoot her. And she just, the way that Dietrich performs in this scene is so casual and so disinterested she's like a a bored movie star at a party where there's just no one that she wants to even interact with and yet she's about to be shot uh and then and then she hands her blindfold back but not before wiping the young soldier's tear that may not be even be there away saying you need this more than me i love it i mean she doesn't say it but i'm thinking implies it um what you said about I know we keep using the word uh, sparseness, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be antagonistic. I, I think it might be more useful to say that, um, I, I think, Ryan, you use the term, like, hermetic. Um, but what I really like about films like this, and I would put something like um, uh, Ackerman's uh, La Captive in, in the same kind of uh, milieu, uh, very self-contained films that, you can't imagine a world um, outside of what you see. Yeah, exactly. That's true. Uh, I, I am certainly not saying that films should definitely be like this all the time, but it is a, a very um, strong subgenre when done well. But uh, back to the scene at hand. Um, I think that I oh sorry yeah oh I'm sorry yeah okay. I think that that casualness that Evan you were describing is what makes it so moving is because she's reasserting her identity both out of and in spycrafts she's reasserting it with such vigor even in the face of of death and it, it reinforces her uh, her lack of fear of death and even that way that she's adjusting his stocking I think almost every most other directors would linger on that moment or try to make it so, so that it's a a full circle, but with 
revisions sort of moment, but it's done almost in exactly the same manner as that opening shot. And I think that is what makes the scene, basically. That's what makes her death all the more tragic in a way. Dietrich smoking is going to convince me to take up smoking. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's all. Yeah. She does smoke wonderfully. The other, I mean, just, yeah, just the, she has so many gestures in this sequence that are amazing. So like, there's the, the looking in the, the mirror of, or the sword uh, as a mirror, there's wiping the tear away. Uh, there's the stocking adjustment. And I think for me, the best is there's a soldier who in this uh, sequence sort of like has a breakdown and gives this like long uh, sort of anti-war statement um, that seems like something out of like, I don't know, Paths of Glory or something like a much more conventional. Or like Broken movie. Lullaby. Yeah, totally Broken Lullaby. That's actually like exactly what it's from. Um, and uh, Dietrich just, again, it just looks like so almost bored by this speech, <laughs> which is just such a strange, like Sternbergian touch. Like you, you have someone giving like this moral message and the lead of your movie just like can't even be bothered. And, and as he's like breaking down and having this like very emotional response uh, to her execution, she just like pulls out lipstick right? <laughs> and is just like casually putting lipstick on. And then like he kind of finishes and she kind of looks up like, oh, okay, you're done now. Like, okay, great. <laughs> and then like puts her lipstick back and then, uh, like two seconds later, she's like brutally massacred, and the and the shooting itself is very. It's striking how cold it feels in a certain way, or not coldly executed. Like she just falls over dead in, into the snow. Uh, totally. It, well, yeah, it's it's in the snow. Why wouldn't it be cold? Come on. Yeah. But it it does have like a totally shocking uh, physicality to it in a way that I think deaths in movies from this period often don't have um like you really feel well it cuts so quickly from her doing these little gestures all of a sudden boom the shots just happen and they're very loud on the soundtrack and very like crisp sounding and then she just like is flies not flies back exactly but like is whirled back and you really get the sense of like the bullets actually like ripping through her um it it is very very physical uh in a, and that contrast between her gestures and this sudden um, acknowledgement of her as a body uh, is uh, partly, I think, what makes the ending so powerful. Meow. Meow. <laughs> Get off the cabinet, Eli. <laughs> well, we could talk about Dishonored all day, but we do have to get through our last film, so we might as well... Uh, move on okay well uh let's take one more break then and then we'll come back and discuss uh, eric romer's triple agent the last film we have today is eric romer's triple agent from 2004 and this is a spy movie of sorts and i think in a way that's really fascinating to me. I was the one of us three that really took to it. Um, I know that you two don't really respond to it that strongly, but I think there's something about it that really drew me into it. It's about a sort of agent, uh, a white Russian Fyodor, 
a retired general from the Tsar's army who's living in Paris, and he lives with his Greek wife, Arsene, and he basically runs affairs for the white Russians, and it seems he does espionage of a sort, but it's not necessarily in the same way that we would think of espionage in times of war or the kind that we see in spies. And most of this, most of the film is really roundabout in the way that it approaches notions of spy crafts. But I think that's what gave it uh, some of its charge for me. Uh, I'm curious to see why you didn't re- respond that strongly to this. Well, I think what's really hard for me... Because it's boring. <laughs> well, that's kind of the crux of it. But let me put that a little bit uh, with a little more nuance, uh, I should, suppose. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think what's really hard for me with this one is how much of the the narrative is happening off screen. Um, I think th- this is the second time I'd seen the film, and I think it occurred to me, uh, it was much more clear to me that there's an extent to which that's the point of the thing, that we're seeing uh, all the action of the film uh, from Arsene, the wife's uh, perspective. I just don't know that I find that a particularly effective choice for this uh, story. And so the first time I watched the film, I was both like very uh, like caught up in trying to follow what was actually happening in the spy narrative because nothing is actually illustrated to us. It's all basically secondhand information. And it's a lot of talking about people who aren't on screen, uh, many of whom you never actually meet. And so it's just strangely structured uh, as a narrative. And so I was initially very caught up in just trying to track what was happening. And then I felt myself just giving up because I really couldn't, couldn't track, uh, what Fyodor was doing when he was away uh, from his wife. But I, I do think that watching it again uh, for the second time did give me a little bit more, uh, or I was a little bit more interested in what's actually happening in the relationship between Fyodor and Arsene. And I think that's actually what the movie's really interested in. It's not actually, I think, interested in uh, spying or espionage really at all or even really in the political situation that the movie is um, tackling. It's really a a movie about their relationship as husband and wife. And um, I can get into this a little bit more later, but, you know, I had a very uh, different experience watching this movie, partly in that regard, because I had read uh, the Eric Romer bio uh, in the time that I, since I had first seen it. And there's, uh, which I highly recommend, by the way, it's one of the, best film books I've ever read. But one kind of sort of major takeaway from that book uh, for me was like the extent to which Romer's life was like super compartmentalized. His family uh, like never really touched his life with cinema and uh, vice versa. And there's a really beautiful scene sort of near the end of the biography where at his funeral, his uh, like cinema family and his real family sort of meet for the first time and they're like total strangers. Um, And so the extent to which this movie, I think, is about uh, a wife who's married to someone uh, who, from her perspective, is, like, dedicated to a life that she can't really access, like, literally operates under a pseudonym in that life, uh, and who is, uh, as I think is said about Fyodor in the movie, like, very discreet about his work. Uh, 
seems to be very true of Romer himself, and I think that's why he's interested in this story. But if not for that, I can't really figure out why, because it is dry as cardboard. Well, that's a... Well... Go ahead. No, um... I mean, I'm just going to say something negative, so you should probably respond first before I pile on. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting. I, as I said before, I'm not really well-versed in Romer, but I think that, and so I don't know if the conversations play worse in context of his career, but I think that that sense of compartmentalization, car, compartment, sorry, compartmentalization <laughs> is, I think, key to how the film operates but i think not only that but the way that the the two worlds can sort of bleed over like you have these conversations between uh uh, fyodor and arsenault and their communist neighbors and the way that the politics subtly work their way into that and i think more more than anything what really excited me about this film is that it's much more expansive or engage with its context in a certain with a certain context in a way that's completely different from spies or dishonored because it takes place in a pretty defined time period 1936 and it's dealing with the the progression the progression towards the towards world war ii there's frequent mentions of nazi germany and how how fyodor is interacting with the now communist russia and those all, I think, are weaved in really well with the normal conversations that he's having with various people in it. And the notion and describing it as a film about a relationship is definitely out in the way that how that can impact the their life. How first Arsenault, after they move from Paris to this suburb into this cavernous house, their their relationship only gets more and more fraught and the way that Roma realizes this in such a in a film that moves so in such a delineated fashion it there are frequent inner titles of months that eventually almost seem to be, become sort of meaningless in terms of how some months can how the events depicted in one month can last so much longer I think that really continually puts the uh, viewer off balance if if they're really paying attention. I think that really worked for me. So I'm not as familiar with Romer's work as Evan is, I think, but I, I'd say I, I've seen a good deal of his work. And uh, a hallmark of his style is um, dialogue, not just the way that the dialogue is written, but the way that the actors uh, uh, perform their roles with, with speaking this dialogue, which is as distinctive as the dialogue in, you know, a, a Hawks or, or a Lubitsch movie in its own way. Um, the way that it punctuates these scenes in, in a way that um, is, I actually think, can be very cinematic, um, um, even to the point of forgoing realism, um, because yeah, it is hard to imagine some of the monologues in, in Roman movies actually being spoken, but I think it's better for it uh, in that regard. But with this film, uh, I found both the dialogue and um, the way that the actors um, speak this dialogue surprisingly uh, flat and not at all something that I would recognize as a Romer movie. Actually, those uh, 
um, you know, months titles uh, that are that are put in there are, I think, the most recognizable Romare thing about this. Um, I think that if you had told me that this was um, just, you know, a recent, a decently received mid two thousands French film about the nineteen thirties that played like at your local landmark theater, <laughs> I would be surprised. Ouch. And I'm really, I'm really sorry to say that because I think that Romer is a great director, and I was very much looking forward to this film. I think that conceptually that is interesting. It's obviously different for Romer, um, but that different is not necessarily bad. Look at. Uh, first of all, maybe the best of this film is mm-hmm. different in a lot of ways. Um, but it's not that I even necessarily, uh, think it's an outright, like, awful movie that I hated watching. That wasn't the case. I was just, uh, very bored and disappointed throughout it. It was very pedestrian in a way that, uh, I, I just want to be clear. I'm not saying that Romer is a pedestrian filmmaker, um, but it was disappointing to me, especially when you consider how great his next film and his last film, um, Astrid and Celadon mm-hmm. is. Yeah. And it's so strange. Like I, I, you're right. I mean, I don't think it's like a bad movie necessarily, but it just kind of sits there and it, what it's very hard to articulate, I think is, uh, just how exactly like the dialogue and the situations here feel flatter than they do in other roamers. Cause like at a high level, it's just not all that different, and so it it is really hard to I think it just shows how thin uh, of a space of like of, uh, or how like little room for error Romer leaves in his other films, which actually I think now that I'm saying that out loud kind of contributes to the way in which I find Romer's other films so thrilling because they're sort of right on the edge of of being exactly what I think his dumbest critics over time have accused them of being, which is just like you know, uninteresting talk fest, but this is like kind of the one that like, I'm like, well, it kind of is an uninteresting talk fest. Like it's the stiletto like precision of his films that generally, uh, make them, I I think much more interesting than his detractors would have. Uh, I, I, uh, agree with you that they're often misinformed about Romer, but if this was the, only one I'd seen, I would assume that those detractors were right. Oh, I, I'm sorry, Ryan, that you're here <laughs> to defend this. I mean, like, I, Evan and I are just complaining now. I mean, I feel like it, I, I'm in a, in a double bind because I'm so unfamiliar with Romer's work. I'm more familiar with his con, with the conceptions that people have about him than his actual work. But I just find that there's some sort of, that I do find that precision, that sense of, it feels like so carefully constructed to me because it feels initially so aimless, like all these different talks about, say, uh, Arsenault's painting and the way that she, that that's incorporated into this larger narrative and I, and her, her illness. I, I just, I don't know exactly why it worked for me other than... Well, the, uh, I should say that you're certainly not the only person I know who, like, triple agent. Yeah. You're not, like... Of course. At, like, out there for liking some film audit. <laughs> I, I know some people who really told me that this is a film I would very much enjoy and I'm going to talk to them about that later uh, and have a, about how they're wrong. But um, <laughs> I think that you 
make it sound more interesting than it is. So, sure. Well, yeah. another thing I think is a little unusual for this film, it's a rumor film too, is uh, the extent to which it takes place almost entirely in interiors. And that's something that it has, uh, that's very different between this and Estrella and Celadon, which comes right after, which is very much, uh, maybe even his most uh, pastoral uh, film. Um, which takes place in these like very verdant um, French landscapes. And I think part of um, why this film maybe feels a little drier to me is that there isn't much of a sense of the kind of like natural world or even of the social world that you see in, in something like Full Moon in Paris or something like that, which is more set um, in a city as opposed to the natural landscape. It does feel um, really like it's just a couple rooms, which is something that I think connects it almost to what we were saying about Dishonored, except that Sternberg takes every room and makes it like the most uh, densely packed space imaginable. Whereas uh, Romer's rooms here seem, aside from maybe the art that she's painting, not particularly detailed in a way that uh, illuminates anything about these people or uh, is, you know, particularly striking on its own terms. Yeah, well, what's uh, to, I just want to say that um, I seem to remember a lot of interiors in um, his Marquise von O adaptation. I could be no, that's wrong, right. I think that's right. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a while, and I think that's one of his best films. Uh, and I think that's a great adaptation. Um, but there is so much, from what I recall, at least uh, there's. Uh, a lot going on in those rooms. Well, and part of what's happening in yeah. that movie, I think, is the interaction between the rooms themselves, right? You have the father in one room, like them in another, and part of the tension is like who's walking between which rooms at what time and like what are they going to see uh, and like those relationships. And it's it's just that kind of like precision and triangulation um, that I don't see here, which is funny given that like the movie is about spying, which like that's kind of what like any good spy movie should do. And triangulation, triple <laughs> Right. Well, and the other thing I thought watching this too, which is quite funny to me, is that like, I was thinking as I was watching this, that like Romer actually already made his like great espionage film, which is The Aviator's Wife, which is literally a movie about spying. Like it's about watching and, and being a, a voyeur. Um, and I think, you know, this movie fits our choice of topics because that's, uh, what the narrative material is, but I just, I actually just don't think Romer was all that interested in, in the spy stuff in this movie. There's something else that he's, uh, he's interested in. Which would be, which would be fine if, you know, I, I don't want to say that, you know, I expected him to make one film, he made a different film, therefore it's bad, that would be ridiculous. Um, I, the problem for me is that um, he doesn't, nail the landing for making this weird anti-romance film uh, I, I don't know about anti-romance per se but I will say that for I think that what the function that Spycraft serves as a narrative in a way that reflects back on how the film is constructed is that it encourages you to look at every interaction and every repeated interaction in, in a different light and i think that the way that the conversations uh drag on i think serves to continually reframe your focus on the on the film um and how the characters operate within this 
this supposed genre framework. And I think that the ending in particular really hammers that point home because it is so it is so cold in a way and it's so it reframes the narrative in such a radical way because it's it's so deliberately almost unsatisfying. It provides a possible explanation for what Fyodor is actually doing, but it and the characters in that scene, uh, German, um, Nazis and Nazi sympathizers, they seem to regard this as the actual, actually what happened. But we, but based on what we've seen, we know that it's not the that it's only one of many, many possible different outcomes or different reasons. Yeah, I really don't know what to make of the last scene to be honest, like, I think you're right that there is something cold about it, which like Romer is often uh, an analytical kind of filmmaker. And I don't, I don't know that I'd really describe his other movies as cold, but they can occasionally be, um, there's some distance usually between Romer and his people, uh, which I think is really important to the way that those movies, uh, these other movies work. Um, but I do think this one does feel particularly cold and almost even cruel in a way um, that I just I, I it's hard for me to imagine Romer being particularly cruel. Uh, and so I just don't really understand the tone of what's happening in that that final scene. Yeah. But the rest of the film, I think I don't think it really feels cold to me because I think there's such such an attention lavished on the particular interactions, especially between Fyodor and Arsenault. I think that the long monologues that they give to each other, especially when Fyodor is pre- presenting a, a explanation of his actions as Arsenault looks on, I think those are executed really well, both in well in all th- in acting and writing and e- even in direction. I think there's a precision to the way that he cuts and his framings that I think really works for me. I I have a. Um... Uh, a problem for me is that I don't think the performances are um, that strong. I, I I know I'm just going to say I was bored in a different way. I'm going to rephrase, I can just rephrase <laughs> that, but I'll save you the time and just say I was bored. Um, again, I don't really have that much to yeah, talk about Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. The, there is something to me about the performances that... Uh, like uh, uh, the great performances in Romer films, you can see the people in his films, the actors and the characters, like thinking. You can watch them I was thinking. Just about right. to say that, and yeah. like, it makes sense to me in a way that Romer would be like, "Great, I can make a spy movie that's all about watching people think." Because, and I'm not going to show anything about spying, but spying is all about like in the moment you have to come up with an explanation or um, you know lie or fabricate. Uh, at a moment's notice and to watch someone have to do that will be interesting. And yet I don't, I have, I feel like I have no window into their internal uh, machinations, machinations in this, in this film. Um, And I don't know if it's just the choice of performers. I don't think Romer hadn't worked with these two uh, leads before. And apparently um, the female lead was uh, rather difficult on set. Um, Although Romer was, uh, I think happy with the performance in the end from what I had read, but um, yeah, I don't know. I just feel left out at a remove in a way I typically don't. Hmm. You know, um, I brought it up at the beginning of 
the podcast, but the BBC adaptation of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I'm not going to give specifics, but you know, a, a lot of it is actually uh, talking and thinking about spycraft ra rather than you know, you know showing people doing you know quote unquote spy stuff. And that actually, in a way, uh, even though it's very unlike a traditional Romer film, you do have that same sort of, you can see the actors thinking. Uh, and I think that was, uh, that's a good example of that it is very possible to show, uh, to have a spy film um, that is primarily about thinking and talking rather than the actual spying. Uh, that is very possible. But for me, it just didn't, you know, work here uh, in the Romer. I think maybe something about the, I think that for for much of the film uh, before before Fyodor, before the stakes in a sense become real for Fyodor, it much of the film is about sort of this practice notion of of spine where you already know what you're going to say, and so that's why the sense of thinking what you're of, of thinking while you're talking uh, that doesn't come into play for much of the film. But after that, after uh, Fyodor actually messes up and his, and his superior is apparently kidnapped, that's when it really becomes, uh, becomes him trying to think on his feet. And that only really lasts for the last 20 minutes or so. But I think that delineation that's in and of itself, that's sort of marked by this, odd iris in I, I don't know if Romer's films incorporated the iris that much but that I think is a pretty significant turn turn on a dime that worked wonders for me Romer doesn't I think there might be something like that but he doesn't really use those sort of um very explicit formal devices too often in his films they're much more um naturalistically shot even though that is you know uh, a weird term to say because I don't necessarily you know what is natural they're superficially but, uh, yeah. naturalistic anyways yeah right. uh, uh, it's an odd uh, film any... but I think it worked for me like I don't know why but it just the accumulation of this sense of keeping history and keeping the outside context at, at bay until both both protagonists are killed. I think that's what what's makes the film so energetic, so thrilling to me. Okay, well, I wish I felt the same, but uh, <laughs> uh, shall we, uh, I guess, wrap it up there then? Uh, we'll give you the last word on, uh, on Triple Agent. So, uh, well, uh, thanks for joining us, Ryan. That was a lot of fun. Uh, and, uh, very glad I got to revisit these films. And like I said, I did find a little bit more to take away with uh, Triple Agent this time. So it um, wasn't uh, an entirely fruitless uh, revisit. <laughs> uh, a resounding endorsement, clearly. Uh, Eli, did you have any uh, final thoughts before we sign off? Um, yes. So we scheduled uh, the films uh, to record uh, a couple weeks before this all uh, end up going, uh, up and before we pick this, uh, there hadn't been a Sternberg Dietrich box set announced, but now there has been. 
and let me say, in not great condition, Dishonored still looks amazing, and it's going to look even better to see it restored, and I can't wait. Yeah, I uh, That's it. can't yeah. wait to, to do that. So this is actually sponsored by Criterion Collection. Thank you, uh, Criterion Collection. Uh, buy tiny furniture. That's, that's what uh, Ryan, any other thoughts on spy movies in general or final uh, words? Definitely a very, very genre and ways that and the stamp that a particular film, filmmaker can put on the genre even more than most other genres is really interesting. And I thank you for having me on for this very, very uh, podcast. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, let's wrap it up then. Thanks listeners. Uh, thanks Eli and Ryan. And, uh, we'll be back in the near future. <laughs> <laughs>